Today on Against the Grain. Too many hours, erratic schedules, not enough hours, and of course, not enough pay. If you're a worker in the US, time feels like the enemy. Yet, as sociologist Jamie McCallum argues, US workers tend to not see their plight as a collective one, and, in a particularly American way, often wear overwork as a badge of honor. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. To be overworked is to be American. Between 1975 and 2016, our working hours increased by five extra weeks per year, while similar advanced industrial countries reduced their working hours. But the increase in our hours is only part of the story. Our work has been increasingly controlled and surveilled, while many of us grapple with irregular or insufficient hours. Why do Americans have such little control over their work lives? That question is at the heart of Work to Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream, published by Basic Books. Its author, Jamie McCallum, is professor of sociology at Middlebury College and the author of Global Unions, Local Power. How typical is it, Jamie, for Americans to work what used to be thought of as a regular work week, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday? The majority of people used to enjoy a standard 9 to 5, as you said. Um, today, that's become much less common. And that change, what's interesting about it, sort of uh, happened behind our back. And so the reason that I you know, wanted to write this book was to talk about that change. I think that one, if we want to put a number on it, um, there's about uh, 80% of hourly workers whose jobs have variable or atypical schedules. Um, and those folks are like their hours are so frequently cut or extended that it's hard to, you know, live off one job, but also sometimes very difficult to hold down to. Right. And one of the things that you emphasize is that what we've been seeing is not just overwork, although that's certainly a big part of it, but also the irregularity of work, speed up, and all sorts of other intersecting changes to the way people work. So tell us about the issue of unpredictable work schedules, because there are certainly many people who may not have enough hours, but they can't take on a second job because the hours of the job they have are all over the place. Exactly. I think there's three things that really define the way we think of changes to work time today. And that is overwork, unstable schedules, and a lack of adequate hours. And this, they sort of define um, the nature of work time today. So you asked about the unstable schedules. Um, there's a significant amount of retail, food service, transportation, um, healthcare, uh, things like that, where workers just simply don't have a regular, not even, not only not a regular nine to five, but not a regular, you know, um, 11 to seven either. In other words, they are working for a, a three hour shift, a two and a half hour shift, a four and a half hour shift, and are sometimes sent home uh, early uh, as per management's discretion and are sometimes kept on longer for the same reason. And very often we think of that as, as unpredictable or haphazard as if, as if it's totally out of everyone's control. But in, but in fact, a lot of those hours are really um, unstable by design because people have lost the power to, you know, to have a stable schedule and to have a predictable working life and management's, it is in some ways to management's benefit to, to have people working all over the place. And so when we think about unpredictability, I, I always like to highlight the fact that um, it's actually very predictable at times for management. It's unpredictable for workers. And that disconnect is, is really significant. 
some attention has been focused on the plight of white-collar workers, often uh, affluent professionals who have extremely long work hours, and the division between life and work has become really blurred. But that focus on the consequences and extension of work into our lives has really missed the plight of low-wage workers and the way that they have been affected by the way work has been restructured. And in fact, quite a few of those low-wage workers, their lives are actually scheduled around the needs of those higher-paid white-collar professions. I wonder if you could broaden the picture out, how we should understand the overworking of workers in the U.S. beyond professional workers. That's a great point. So if if overwork or long hours, whatever you want to call it, was just confined to a bunch of people in tech or some lawyers, no one would care. It wouldn't really be much of an issue. Uh, and in fact, though, in fact, it's important to say today, the people who work the longest are still largely white men in high income careers with a lot of discretion and power over their time. However, the most interesting change in the last 40 years has been among low-wage workers. Um, so I think that uh, over the last, uh, since 1979, uh, low-income workers have increased their working hours by about 24%. And the top, you know, the top earners, the top fifth of in- income earners, for example, have increased their hours by only three, about 3%. So uh, one of the points of this book is to highlight that inequity and to say that when we think about long hours, we almost are always talking about these sort of white collar professionals, when in fact the change has been very significant on the other end. So for uh, those low wage workers who kind of are invisible in the story of overwork, can you talk about uh, mandatory overtime and explain for us how some workers are not eligible for overtime pay, but may be forced to work overtime nonetheless? Sure. The Fair Labor Standards Act, has, which is the main um, law that would dictate or govern these issues in America today, has not been adequately updated in a very long time. And consequently, there are significant groups of people who simply fall outside of its jurisdiction. And so um, who would not be protected by laws that would limit mandatory overtime. Um, but there's other ways I think that also this happens. Um, you know, there, there are tons of places where there are fair scheduling laws on the books. For example, where I live in Vermont, there are pretty decent fair scheduling laws, and yet workers don't know them. Like if you walk up and down the main thoroughfare in Burlington and ask service workers, which I've done, um, you know, what do you what do you know about your schedule and blah, blah, blah. They do not know that there's a law, you know, called a right to request law where they can request their schedule X number of days in advance, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's not just a question of the law, but really a question of workers, A, having the power to defend the law and B, you know, having being educated about their about what rights they do have on the job. And I think all those things contribute to management sort of being able to push people around, either by cutting their hours or by extending them. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that at the top of the ladder, one sees the most overwork. And even though we may have little sympathy for them, CEOs and other bosses work extremely long hours by and large. Aside from pay, how does their work differ from the overwork of those who you've been just talking about, those on the bottom? It's not that um, I don't have sympathy for them. It's in some, some ways, I do. I think what's interesting to is that there's actually quite a bit of precarity at the top of the income ladder as well. In other words, that one of the factors driving long hours at the top of the income income distribution is, in fact, that uh, you know, bosses um, seeing people uh, leave early during the day or even leave on time during the day, uh, they tend to remember that when it comes time for 
uh, bonuses and other kinds of extra compensation packages, things like that at the end of the year. Um, and also uh, workers at the top are just as familiar with this sort of here today, gone tomorrow nature of a lot of really good jobs. And so they are, in some ways, they are also incentivized to work longer hours. Um, even if, if you have a salary, there's no obvious immediate way in which long hours are necessarily uh, beneficial, sort of in a in sort of day-to-day -day paycheck kind of way. Um, what, I'll, what I do think is interesting and what I talk about in the book a lot, which I think is the most interesting aspect of this whole thing is it's fairly understandable why low-wage workers have been working more hours. They can't afford to work fewer because of inequality, the decline of the labor movement, et cetera. For higher income workers, it's a little bit stranger. And I think for that, there are cultural explanations that talk about um, you know, things like the inherent value of work, or especially a discourse about meaningful work that has encouraged uh, you know, certain people to explore new forms of personal identity, new forms of fulfillment through work. And in that sense, more of it tends to be better. And I think that there are large um, there's an interesting explanation there about why, what drives long hours at, at, for those kinds of workers. And we'll return to that really interesting question as we go. I wonder, though, if you could talk about the role of technology in overwork today. It's obviously easy, probably too easy, to lay the blame of societal changes or political changes at the feet of technology. But certainly technology has been deployed to play a role that affects how much we work and also the ways that we work. Yes. So you're, I totally agree with you that it's too easy or too simplistic to sort of blame technology. Um, but at the same time, it would be, it doesn't make sense to ignore it either. And I think it, it, it makes sense to think about technology as we would think about other things as it a direct relationship to worker power. There was a time in the uh, 1950s, 1960s, when labor-saving technology was really entering the workplace in the form of automation and robots. And uh, workers were very scared uh, about this, yet there was um, an ability to turn some of that uh, automation into free time into higher wages and free time. And that that period is over. And because we have because workers don't have as much power anymore and employers have a lot more and they institute labor labor saving technology um, without raising wages. And so uh, which does incentivize people to work to, to make extra money by working longer hours. And so that's one way in which technology is intimately related to labor power or, or labor time. The other way I think today, which we hear a lot about, would be things like that are more, um, they seem more sinister, but that are really about workplace surveillance. So the pandemic has exacerbated a longstanding trend, but has by no means started it, that workers are, including white collar workers, are under constant surveillance for how they're spending their time um, when they take breaks when they take bathroom breaks, when they're on social media, when they use their cell phone for personal reasons. Um, and there's all kinds of surveillance software these days and technology that can monitor that time and tends to pay people accordingly. And obviously what counts as billable hours then becomes a political question less than a technical one. So I think the way you asked the question was really good because it's important to see technological changes alongside changes to the ways workers do or do not have power on the job. I'm speaking with sociologist Jamie McCallum. He is the author of the new book, Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream. That's published by Basic Books. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So take us back to the historical trajectory of working hours. Uh, the economist John Maynard Keynes famously predicted that by the 21st century, by now, we would be working a 15-hour work week. 
What went so wrong? So for about a hundred years, uh, the hours of labor in America tended to decline. And in some ways, they de sometimes they declined it fairly precipitously. Um, the working day got shorter, the working week got shorter, the working year got shorter. And a lot of that had to do with significant pressure from labor organizations, trade unions, and um, allied reformers, et cetera. Um, and so there was good reason for Keynes to think that that trend would continue, especially as it related to the ability of the, the economy, like compound interest, to basically translate into leisure. And that's what he thought would happen. It didn't happen, I think, largely for a number of reasons, which basically is the subject of the whole book. Um, but one being that uh, it be we began to reverse course in hours. In other words, hours began to stagnate and rise again in the early 70s. Um, at the same time that uh, workers and trade unions became under fierce attack from uh, business elites, which is basically the onset of neoliberalism. And because labor unions were once the main vehicle by which people got shorter hours, higher wages, and a better working life, as those institutions tended to decline and become uh, eroded, it, you know, it makes sort of obvious sense that um, their gains would also be eroded. And that's exactly what we see. So uh, another way to put it might be that as inequality, as, as unions came under attack, inequality tended to increase. As inequality increased, uh, ordinary working folks had much less money and could no longer afford to work shorter hours. So there was an incentive to both provide longer hour jobs and an incentive to work to pursue them, to work longer hours. Well, I want to ask you more about the many dimensions of that shift, but is this a especially or particularly American phenomenon? I mean, neoliberalism took hold, um, not just in the US, but also in Europe, spreading to the rest of the world. But Americans find themselves working longer hours than many or most of their peers in advanced industrialized countries. Exactly. At, at mid-century, Americans worked fewer hours than a lot of countries in Europe. Um, today, it's much different. Um, we work, um, I think, about 260 hours a year more than the French, about 400 hours a year more than the Germans, which you know end up being a few weeks of work. It's significant. Um, and so the you know neoliberal trends certainly proceeded apace in Europe. Um, the attack on labor unions was uh, not as significant. And I think there are, are other differences, um, sort of cross-national differences uh, that would also guard against um, the, the same exact situation happening. So for example, one main driver of long hours in America is um, employer healthcare. And if you have national healthcare, um, you have a different uh, incentive and a different ability to provide shorter hours because so many people in America get their healthcare through work. I think about half of Americans get their healthcare through their employer. And so, um, you know, a lot of, bargaining and, and contracts happen over healthcare. And therefore, workers don't have the ability to bargain over other things instead, for example, like shorter hours. Well, you're saying uh, and you're arguing that, um, that the shift to uh, ever longer hours um, was driven by a number of forces sort of intersecting. And, you know, you mentioned that the enormous inequality of American society as being key. And we'll talk about some of the cultural elements as we go on. But I wanted to ask you about um, how in the process of work, uh, that this sort of re, this, sorry, uh, let me restate that in the process of extending 
uh, working hours, it wasn't just about um, it was it wasn't just a, a change in quantity, but there was a qualitative change that also happened to the work process that management exerted greater control over work time. Can you explain that? Yeah, so I think that um, we typically think of the movement for shorter hours as about leisure. In other words, you know, there's the old bumper sticker that the, you know, the labor movement, the folks who brought you the weekend. And um, we think of the slogan of the eight hour day, you know, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. And that, that struggle for time for what we will is very important. I also don't think it's the full thing. And I think the larger story is that, um, and this is especially true of struggles over labor time today, is that they're in some ways more about control over labor time than they are just about uh, reducing it. Um, so the scheduling stuff that we talked about earlier is a prime example of that. Uh, workers just simply don't have the uh, ability to either, um, you know, act on laws that are existing or laws merely don't, are simply absent to regulate the way employers can, can schedule workers. And um, they are, you know, generally it's hard for, it's hard for people to exercise any kinds of control over that time at all, especially low wage workers. And I think that loss of control because largely of the decline of the labor movement has been a significant driver of not just longer hours, but uh, worse schedules and even, um, even uh, not enough hours. You know, if you look at, if you page through a history book um, or even the first chapter of my book, you'll see a, a picture of workers in the 1930s, you know, carrying a banner that says, you know, we demand a six hour day, which they never really won. And you fast forward to 2015, 2016, and you see workers on strike at Walmart with placards that say, you know, we demand longer hours. And it's not that they want more hours, they obviously want more money, like they want the time necessary to, um, to live a dignified life. But, um, but the shift in how even the labor movement has been talking about work time uh, in, in that in that time period, I think has been pretty interesting. So would it be fair to say that the kind of change that started in the 1970s with neoliberalism, which has often been described as a sort of class war from above, that the introduction of longer hours and at the same time, the kind of management control over time has been a key element in the profitability that is associated with that sort of economic turn in American capitalism? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the way you described it is exactly right as a, as a class war from above. And what's interesting to me is that uh, labor time has always been a, um, a dimension of that class struggle. So, you know, anyone familiar with, you know, the long history of labor understands that, you know, struggles for control of the clocks, for example, um, when, when clocks first entered factories was uh, significant um, because if management had control over clocks, they had control over how much money people made and how much time they spent away from their families and whatnot. And, um, you know, whereas, whereas there was a long struggle, sort of as I would put it, um, against time, for a while in American history, I think now we more struggle um, about time. Like it's a little bit, the the character of the struggles for labor time today are a little bit different. Um, the way they would deal with profitability, I would say, and not just for corporate profitability. I mean, they had really significant implications for how people make their money. So for example, um, you know, over the last 40 years, the rich have gotten richer, largely because of higher salaries, higher wages, and compensation packages, whereas work workers and middle class people have largely maintained their standard of living because of longer hours. 
Um, so there's, there's a, a way in which working time then is a dimension of class struggle because certain people, their time is, is more valuable, uh, quite literally. And I think that, um, uh, that is, you know, a relative, a relatively new development. You mentioned earlier that in the 1970s, in the period of the advent of neoliberalism, where inequality and these processes started to really gear up, that there also was a cultural shift in how we see our work. That work is not just about money, although of course it is about money, but also about purpose and meaningfulness. Describe for us that cultural shift and who it was most significant for. So I think it's really, really interesting. In the book, I have a little graph that in some ways looks kind of silly um, about the times that the frequency that the phrase meaningful work is used in American uh, English speaking books and magazines. And uh, it's basically flat for a, you know, a very long time. And then all of a sudden in the 1970s, it goes vertical. And so, you know, I became curious about uh, why it is that we get, began to talk about our jobs in terms of, of more than money. And I think there's a few reasons. What we often think about when we think of this, th think of this idea is that it's just a cultural idea. Um, it, it, people like meaningful jobs and that it, it represents a shift in people's individual uh, thinking about their work. And of course, no one's against meaningful work and therefore it's an inherent, it's generally a good thing. So what I did in the book was to draw out sort of a different history of it. Um, and I think there's a few ways it happened. One is that in the 1970s, again, you begin to um, see uh, industrial workers, especially uh, factory workers demanding um, jobs that are different than the monotonous, rigorous daily grind of a conveyor belt factory kind of job. There was a really interesting report uh, done then by the government on like workplace alienation, you know, which we typically associate with kind of Marxist intellectuals. And in this case, it was, you know, workers talking about the degree to which employers have merely forgotten about the human's um, that are actually operating, you know, machines in, fa in factories. And so that uh, discourse, I think, was very legitimate. What happened is that uh, it was hijacked, I think. It was hijacked by uh, management uh, gurus and management theorists um, who took note that, well, if work was, in fact, uh, better for the soul, and good for uh, people, um, that more of it would be better. And we saw some of the, there's a white collar counterpart to the blue collar story, is that office workers in uh, the 80s and to some extent earlier, um, mostly the 80s, you know, began to really challenge the um, sort of awfulness of cubicle life as well, and began to try to remake the office as a liberating uh, interesting emancipated space. And I try not to be cynical about those, um, about those interests because I worked in an office and I know how grueling and how awful it can be. However, I also think that those two, those demands were sort of usurped my management. So today we have a very different, uh, meaningful work discourse. One that, um, I think privileges, uh, privileges meeting over money essentially. And it became, uh, you know, it's become very popular. If you, if you, uh, I interviewed mostly tech workers for that chapter. Um, but also if you talk to low wage workers, uh, they have a real, uh, demand for, um, more meaningful jobs. And, and what is also striking in that is it seems to be yet once again, how neoliberalism has been very effective in sort of appropriating some of the liberatory impulses of the 60s and 70s about against alienation of work and for more flexibility in work 
and then sort of flipped it to the benefit of capital. But one place where no sort of liberatory spirits were being harnessed and redirected was around workfare, which really seemed much more pointedly punitive. Can you tell us about the move by politicians and the Democratic Party and Republican parties to make necessary food and welfare support contingent on work for welfare recipients? Sure. So let me just also say, I think you're you're exactly right. The way you put it is perfect, that the degree to which capital was able to sort of recuperate the demands of uh, the new left and to some extent, some of the new left that was associated with um, uh, factory workers and was even associated with some of the early computer industries was exactly the process by which, by which that happened. Um, as far as the uh, workfare stuff goes, I mean, certainly, certainly, you know, one driver of um declining job quality alongside rising and unstable hours is the rise of workfare. The brief outline of that history often starts, you can start it pretty far back um, in the 70s, but you know I think a lot of people tend to focus on Clinton's 1996 um, ruling that, you know, quote, ended welfare as we know it, that uh, made it far more mandatory to work in exchange for welfare benefits, which we, which, so we, we began to think of it not as welfare, but as workfare. It was a shift that meant that, um, you know, whereas at one point society owed low wage workers or we owed poor people something. In other words, we owed them a decent life, uh, some, um, some money for food, housing, et cetera. Uh, and that switched to being that poor people owe us something, and that is their time, their labor time. Um, and that uh, switch um, was very significant because it threw into the labor market tons of low-wage workers um, who not only were all of a sudden who were working, who weren't working before, but were also working for very low wages, which tended to drive down, drag down the wages of other workers. And for the most part, except for a few cases, struggles to um, uh, against workfare have been fairly have been fairly unsuccessful. My guest today is sociologist Jamie McCallum. We'll return with him in a moment. listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm joined by Jamie McCallum. He's professor of sociology at Middlebury College. He's the author of the new book, Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream. That's published by Basic Books on againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. He's also the author of Global Union's Local Power. Well, I wanted to ask you, Jamie, about the way the labor movement has faced this question of work time. You were talking about the contrast between the banners in the 1930s uh, demanding a six-hour day and struggles now, labor struggles, of having adequate hours for people to be able to survive. Tell us, if you would, about the way the labor movement has, from the late 19th century through the 20th century, prioritized the question of reducing work time? 
you know, I think the first uh, campaign that often we look to um, was the Carpenters' strike in the late 1700s to win a 10-hour day. Um, it took a long time, I think almost about almost a century, to sort of win um, what we typically think of as an eight-hour day, even though that was it was not standardized at that point. You know, I always say that if you if you enjoy a weekend these days, you, you should thank your nearest socialist because there was a role for radicals and socialists and communists and anarchists in the um, early American labor movement to play for really pushing for a reduction of work time because um, it was seen as not only uh, more fair and equitable, but also really part of sort of the, the good life. There was like a cultural good to free time. I think today you have a slightly different character, but I think one of the main ways we see the struggle over labor time today happening in the labor movement is through the movement for fair scheduling. Um, the fair scheduling movement has won uh, regulations um, in I think 15 states. I think the first one was San Francisco. Uh, where basically what this means is that um, workers and community allies, um, including the Center for Popular Democracy, really pushed for uh, workers to have the right to receive their, their schedule more than, let's say, two or three weeks in advance. And there, were, there would be a high penalty to the employer to changing that schedule as it got closer to the workday. Um, so that, to me, speaks to this impulse to having better control, exercising better control over the time people work. Um, and I think it has, you know, proved very interesting because the movement has been fairly successful at winning regulations. Uh, winning legal and political changes are different than actually enacting real workplace changes, which often for that you need a union or something like a union. And so there are situations in which workers have laws on the books, but can't actually act on them. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a really good start. And uh, so one other way, I guess, would be to think about unions negotiating over um, the introduction of labor-saving technology and automation, which is not super widespread, but before I wrote this book was more it's more widespread than I than I'd thought. And and how would you characterize the labor movement's attitude today to fighting these sorts of battles? I mean, for those workers who are lucky enough to have unions, how important are such struggles for the labor movement? It's tough to know. I think it's been very hard to, you know, at a time when so many when wages are flat. Uh, or declining in certain circumstances for the past few decades. Um, and it's hard to think about, well, let's, let's work fewer hours because so many people get by by working extended hours. So I think there's, there's been a general um, sidelining of that impulse. And, you know, at times for, 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 for really good reason. I, in, in the book, I referred to this as, as labor's forgotten fight, because I do think that, you know, the original impulse of the labor movement was basically to decrease hours. That was the whole point of it. And, um, and to, you know, to, uh, to control what was left. And I do think a return to that is warranted. Um, it seems weird to think about that now when so many people are out of work, to think about shortening the hours of labor. But um, during the Depression, for example, uh, there was significant reason to use work sharing legislation, for example, that cut everyone's hours, uh, but avoided mass layoffs. So allowed people to keep their jobs while everyone worked less. Um, and so there are things like that that I think uh, the labor movement is definitely toying with. And I know recently there's been interest uh, within the AFL-CIO of uh, really looking into how to harness um, certain kinds of labor-saving technologies to their to their benefit to reduce the work week, um, and 
you know, they're very early stage thinking on that stuff. Uh, but I do think it's becoming, you know, maybe more of an issue. And of course, today, there's also the question of, of the climate crisis and new arguments to be made for shortening the work week. But stepping back a bit, what are the political implications for the left, for radicals, even for the labor movement of not having enough leisure time? Uh, man, that is a great question. My thinking on that was really changed when I uh, spoke with Sam Ginden, who is a, a Canadian uh, writer, um, thinker, and labor organizer. And I think has been very close to the, the auto workers unions, both in Canada and the United States. And his you know, he really pointed me to something that I think was really important. And that is that uh, organizing takes time and uh, conspiring to uh, to struggle takes time <laughs> and people simply don't have a lot of it. And um, so I think, you know, having uh, free time for leisure is important having free time to fight back and to organize is something a little bit different. And I think that there's been a large focus on the former among folks on the left that sort of have been interested in um, anti-work politics uh, that are uh, very interested in promoting uh, what we think of as leisure. So I think that is one really important facet of it, that people need time to organize. And, you know, most labor organizers would tell you it's really hard when you go out door knocking or go talking to people, getting people involved in fights outside their time at the workplace after a long slog on the job is just very difficult. So I think for that reason, it's really important. Free time is a, a public good. And I think that expanding uh, the time which people have for their families, for their friends, um, uh, is, you know, if the left were to be able to take credit for that and were to be able to have a, have a role in promoting that would vastly increase the popularity um, of the left. It would be a real material benefit for millions and millions of people. And I think the left need needs uh, to focus on gains like that. I'm speaking with Jamie McCallum. He is professor of sociology at Middlebury College, author of Worked Over. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you argue in Worked Over that Americans tend to grapple with these tricky questions of of labor time by trying to deal with them on an individual basis by making sort of lifestyle changes. You know, how how can I be more efficient in my day? How can I improve my work life balance by making changes myself without generalizing this to a, a political struggle, which you say is is absolutely necessary because this is a collective problem, not an individual problem. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that if people were able to organize around this issue in a broad way, that this would be an issue, a fight that could unify workers who are very much divided between low wage workers and higher wage workers? Do you think it could provide a kind of commonality? And if so, what what would such a, a broad based movement look like as you would see it? That is a really, um, you know, to use a cliche, the sort of million dollar question. And I think that when I started uh, doing research for this book, I thought there was a kind of provisional symmetry among people who were overworked and that there was, um, that if you look at some, you know, just general statistics and you see an increase of people working more, you think, oh my God, everyone's working more. And in fact, it's not like inside that statistic is, is, is a lot of variation and um, a lot of, there's a lot of class conflict within that variation, actually. Um, so uh, a movement um, like, can would time be a kind of terrain that people could struggle over together? It's possible. But I think that there are, there are very specific things that we could think about that, as you said, are more collective and less individual that are really important. 
Um, one certainly certainly would be work sharing. Um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, work sharing is a relatively simple prospect. Um, and that is that uh, instead of um, at times of crisis, especially like the, like the one we're in right now, instead of mass layoffs, you would decrease the hours of people at a particular job site, um, though not, not fully decrease their pay and uh, spread and keep more people employed to avoid layoffs. This has been very successful in Germany um, in 2009 after the crisis then to avoid um, such a deep recession as we had. There are work sharing laws on the books in the United States. They were increased under Obama um, and we should be making more use of them than we are. But wouldn't such changes necessitate higher wages? Because you were saying one thing that was particularly acute in the US is that because people they need to have a certain number of hours to have health care or just the costs are such that their job may not even be totally cutting it. If their hours were to be shared, would they also not need to have their wages increased at the same time? Yes, exactly. So work sharing statutes um, uh, allow for the federal government to subsidize the lost wages from the decline of time. That's how the the decrease of time. That's how the work sharing they use unemployment insurance and, and federal funds to subsidize employers to keep uh, to keep paying workers their former level uh, while while employing while employing more people. Um, and we have the ability to do that. We have um, we have laws that would be able to 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 do that. And I think to some extent they're being they're being used, though they could probably be increased. Um, the healthcare issue that you mentioned, I think, is a really important one. I um, mean, here is where I think the fight for universal health care is a fight that the labor movement should, you know, um, should become more heavily involved with. There is a there is an element at which um, the labor movement has to occasionally seen the fight for universal health care as anti-union because one incentive for people to join unions, after all, is to get health care. However, um, bargaining over health care has contributed to um, or to rising um, hours because the the ability of um, workers to bargain over other things like wages, uh, like time, like um, uh, other quality of life issues in the job has been crowded out by bargaining over healthcare. It's now one of the largest drivers of strikes and lockouts and on the job conflicts and taking it off the bargaining table um, would be uh, would be a boon for for workers. Well, let me end by asking you about how all of these dynamics come together and maybe become accelerated during this moment, this period we're living through, this crisis with the coronavirus? How do you see the different dimensions that you've been describing as they play out right now during this pandemic? It's a great question. Uh, I think that there's a few things. One is that the inequality and weakness of uh, the American working class overall, in terms of their organizational capacity, really was is a pre-existing condition for the pandemic. In other words, like our pandemic, um, our crisis is deeper because of issues that have been percolating for decades in the American political economy. And so um, the divergence of the way uh, white collar workers work and think about their time on the job and other folks do has obviously become very, very different. Um, the, it's, it seemed like early data, it's too early to really tell this definitively. It does seem to be the case that um, uh, white collar workers um, have, you know, to some extent increased the time they spend connected to work throughout the day, though obviously um, especially those without childcare, work far fewer straight eight-hour days. And so in other words, some of the instability and 
um, haphazardness of the working day of ordinary retail workers, for example, um, has uh, become visible to other classes of people as well. Um, the other thing is that there are certain uh, prospects to shorten working time, uh, like uh, work sharing, like access to universal basic services like healthcare or other other basic services like food and and uh, rental assistance, which would be important to decreasing people's dependence on work in general, and which would also tend to ameliorate the crisis. So I think that there are solutions that I talk about at the end of the book to to labor time that are also ways to figure out our way out of the, the current crisis. And I think there is a real role to play for even sort of socialist light uh, policies to, uh, to become popular. Jamie McCallum, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jamie McCallum is the author of Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream. You can find a link to it on againstthegrain.org. It's published by Basic Books. He's professor of sociology at Middlebury College and also the author of Global Unions, Local Power. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.